All right, today's a really big one. I am going to start with a small recap of the end of the second sphere. So last week, we talked about how the Delith counterattack made up of the Puritide-invented rapid redeployment forces were able to blitzkrieg, effectively, the uh, General Gage's advance. Meanwhile, Operation Pluto, which was launched by the Imperials in the, in the final days of what can be called the Damocles Gulf Crusade, it is also called the Lafeche War. Operation Pluto successfully drives home and takes a vital spaceport from, from the Tau, and it is in this act that the Imperials, for potentially one of the first times in modern Imperial history, sue for peace, or at least accept parlay. Now, we know that during the entirety of the invasion of Dalith, the water cast was consistently working with, or, or at least trying to work with, the crusade leadership in an attempt to broker some kind of peace or ceasefire. These initiatives were led by poor O. Viorla Kovash Mienchi, and he and his family become, are, are, you know, rise to prominence. There are, there are several named characters that are part of the uh, Mienchi bloodline. But this ceasefire is, is almost marred by the attempts of Inquisitor Grand, who is a member of the Ordo Xenos, he attempts to, despite the fact that the Crusade leadership, including the Space Marines, have, uh, ba have basically written off the use of exterminatus weapons against Dalith, uh, Inquisitor Grand at attempts to directly launch the weapons and is incapacitated and or murdered by a rogue trader who, who, who fights him and, and, uh, in, the, in the prow of the, uh, of the Imperial battleship I believe it's called the uh, Righteous Judgment. So begins the a, a very brief period of negotiation as the Imperial forces uh, are reclaim reclaim what they can, most notably the Titans and Space Marine forces, uh, but they abandon their Imperial the, the Imperial Guard as well as uh, lots of materiel to the planet surface. This pullback is. I would say it's 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 twofold. One, um, Inquisitor Crippman has identified the Tyranids as an apex threat to the Ultima Segmentum, and is using his authority, which is vast, to pull back Imperial efforts from all across the Segmentum. This is a uh, amidst other channels and and talks and everything. This is given the main reason why the Imperial forces are uh, ultimately are defeated at Delith. And that's fine to, to say, but really, if you look at the numbers games and you look at the, the boots on the ground re, uh, recounts of this conflict, the Imperium is very soundly stalled. And at the, at the time, we're looking at a Tau Empire that is roughly 83 worlds spread across about a dozen septs of the first and second spheres. While they have lost uh, between 10 and 15 worlds in the northern part of their empire, which which is which is where uh, Dalith Sept is, and and then beyond the Damocles Gulf, uh, where Silikel was, as well as Kleist and Garrus, these allied human worlds, the Tower a much larger empire than the Imperium initially suspected. While I will also say that the Imperium inflicted enormous amounts of damage, probably the most. Probably the most uh, damage that the Tau have ever received in a singular conflict. It, it is still, uh, one could argue that it's a Pyrrhic victory, but, but it is a sound Imperial defeat. 
uh, a pyrrhic victory for the Tau. And the reason I want to stress that, not just because this is a, a Tau-oriented or, or Tau-centric podcast, but again, if you look at the numbers, the, the Damocles Crusade is not a large crusade force. It is still dozens of ships, several Space Marine uh, chapters are present in, you know, either at the squad level or a company level. Uh, the Scar Lord Space Marines are at potentially 70, somewhere between half and 75% of their entire chapter. And they are in this conflict effectively reduced. They're not completely wiped out, but they, uh, they're, 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 they're crippled. This crusade should have, in theory, been able to destroy a, a, minor, uh, a minor alien empire. And instead, the first major world that it comes in contact with, it is unable to conquer, destroy, or, or, or occupy. And, and the entirety of the imperial element is, is pulled back and forced. I think, it, I think everyone should know it's a really big deal for humanity, especially at this point in their history, to have a carte blanche diplomatic event with aliens. Um, we've, we've seen the Imperium do this with Eldar from time to time, but it really is almost on individual levels. Uh, a Space Marine uh, commander or a... Uh, or, or, or I guess an admiral of some kind will negotiate on behalf of the Imperium with the Eldar to do something, um, usually to accomplish some kind of uh, joint action against the forces of chaos, uh, as we see in the Gothic Sector War during Abaddon's 12th Black Crusade, just before his 13th. It's, it's massively uncommon for the Imperium to actually admit that, that they effectively need to quit the field against an alien force. Typically, the policy amongst the, uh, the Imperium is to d die fighting against the alien or to kind of grind themselves to, to dust in, in a prolonged siege or something, but never, never, never parlay. So this happens, and, and on the Tau side, it, it should be noted that it, it's not, it's not a, a flawless victory. It, it's, as I said, a Pyrrhic victory. The second sphere expansion, this, this age of colonization, um, is prematurely stopped. And this, of course, has never happened before because the reason why the first sphere stopped is literally a, uh, a lack of bodies to continue the exploration and colonial efforts. Uh, Red, uh, oh, there's a request. Uh, hi, is my hey. mic all right? Yep. Okay, so with the, the Imperial retreat from Damocles, among a lot of the fandom, you see this idea of, oh yeah, the Imperium could have just sent more ships, sent more manpower, and then just completely wiped the Empire out at this point. But I think that what they tend to ignore is the logistical reality in this situation, where an, Imperi an Imperial fleet, for, for kind of the first time in a couple thousand years probably, mm. has had to contend with the idea of, we do not have the resources available to us to counter this threat. Like when when you're dealing with um, an orc uh, an orc wog or a tyranid hive fleet, you can kind of just throw material at the problem until it goes away. That's the imperium the imperium's modus operandi when it comes to basically anything warfare wise. You know the the defining uh, visual of the imperial war aesthetic is massed infantry attacks across no man's land getting just completely gunned down by whatever's on the other side right and 
in this case, the Imperium has run into the problem where they're dealing with a fairly small cluster of planets on a, on a galactic scale. And as a result, you can't just cram more ships in there and expect it to work, especially with the victories the Tau have been winning despite being outnumbered. And so right. for, the, for the Imperium, who are in this situation of we're grinding ourselves into attrition and we really don't, we're really not making the gains we should be in this situation. It's kind of, in all honesty, a smart decision to just say, all right, we are not going to win this without dumping enough troops into it that it's no longer worth it. Uh, the Tau are, they, they kind of make the decision that the Tau are not enough of a threat to 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 uh, reduce garrisons on other worlds, protecting against other threats, things like that. And I think it shows that even in this situation, the Imperium is heavily underestimating the Tau and their capabilities. They don't really understand the the technological pace at which the Tau are advancing, and they've kind of just come to the. They come. They don't decide to stop, be just because they feel like it. Their their stopping is a calculated decision that they can't push all the way through without losing everything on other fronts. Yeah, no, I'm in I'm in total agreement. I know that there's uh, out there there's a lot of criticism about the Tau having very dense plot armor, and I think that the Damocles Gulf Crusade is a perfect is is first of all its origin fluff. It's it's the foundation of the entire faction. Um, and I would, I would say that reflexively, the Tau experience the same recognition against the orcs, for example, uh, or the Arakan, they are fighting against a, an enemy that is roughly single dimension, like one dimension, right? When you fight the orcs, you are fighting against, uh, an, 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 a more or less, uh, very difficult to stop Hulk, right? You're it's an enemy you can't reason with. Exactly. And even though the Tau try to reason with them, they don't ever have to worry about uh, espionage. They don't have to worry about assassinations, really. When you're fighting against the orcs, it's fighting a storm. You know, a storm is devastating, but you know how to prepare for it. You know how to manage expectations, and you know how to recover uh, once it's gone. When the Imperium comes in, you're fighting against things like titans. Um, you're fighting against... Uh, uh, inquisitorial agents, assassination attempts, counter espionage, an entire uh, an entire panoply of 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 warfare, uh, and who at the apex of these are the Space Marines, uh, which are are just an uh, are, are a multi tiered enemy that can strike in all theaters of war. Uh, if if you're fighting against ten Space Marines. Uh, it it it's one thing, but if you're fighting against one space marine, it's it's another. Ten space marines can knock down a fortress. One space marine can infiltrate uh, behind the lines and blow up shield generate. You know, like all, all all different kinds of scenarios happen against space marines. And the worst thing about them is that they're intelligible. You know, you can you can engage in conversation, which Farsight notably does uh, during uh, during the the war on Dalith, and and so there, I think the Tau are, are entirely perplexed as to how a sentient, culturally advanced, ancient 
nation like the Imperium, why it's not even coming to the table to ne negotiate, you know? And it's, I think it's fascinating. And I, I think that both, both the Imperium and the Tau are surprised by one another um, to, to their cultural core, you know? The, the, and, and maybe that's why it's so interesting that the age between the second and third spheres uh, is called the time of questioning um, or not ah. And and we'll get into that now. Uh, Bossman, is, uh, thank you for coming up. Is are uh, are you good? I'll put you back yeah. in the audience. Of, yeah, cool. Thanks. And by the way, if anybody has anything they'd like to say, just raise your hand. Um. So. So okay. So it. So we we kind of enter into the into seven forty five millennium forty one. The Imperials have now pulled back, and they've left. They've left a large population of humans, uh, while they have also left dozen, uh, about a dozen, to it, depending on which we're counting. Obviously, everything is always vague on the Warhammer forty thousand side, but uh, it's said that between twelve and fifteen Tau worlds are lost. We do know that the the war front of the Crusade is not just Dalith. Dalith was the was the uh, was the where where the ram hit the wall. Um, but we, but we also know that there were conflicts as far as Sakia and Kelshan, um, which, by the way, this today we're going to talk about Kelshan a lot. So, so this imperial uh, conflict zone is is almost the whole of the Northern Empire, and and the worlds that are lost to this uh, to this attack, none of them. Uh, Exterminatus is not committed on any of them. However, they are. It's seemingly they are destroyed. Um, in in one case, uh, there is mention of uh, Tau, uh, a, a Tau colony that is just basically lanced from orbit, and um, uh, which causes a chain reaction. Uh, the the planet, which is covered in ice, uh, effectively the sea boils and it it it, it, it the, the the planet kind of disintegrates. So I guess that's a kind of exterminatus, but it's not it's not full on uh, the uh, it's it's not the viral weapons that the that the Imperium uses. In response, the Tau have to reassess everything. And so the second age is brought to an end. And what occurs next is really interesting because, and we should start with Farsight. Farsight will obviously get his own episode, but Farsight at this time is, is likely a newly christened uh, Chasseau. Um, he has been training with Puritide after his victories at Arkunasha, which was, um, it gets a little bit vague because there are, there are a couple different accounts of it, but Arkunasha is, uh, was a border world, likely in the Viorla Sep, that came under attack by uh, the Orcs. Um, the Orcs are a constant threat, but uh, for the Tau Empire throughout the last two spheres, However, it, it is really important to note as we get into the reclamation that the that the orcs are are kind of a are, are really are, are really reduced to pirates. Um, they they sometimes attack planets. They sometimes raid colonies, but it's never it's never a, a very large. Uh, it's it's not as large as some of the other events that that will will soon happen. Um, so. So Farsight uh, has 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 really he's led a very public campaign against the Imperials. He's utilized 
dozens of experimental weapons. Uh, he has a flash for uh, direct engagements where he puts himself on the front lines. This is what made him famous during Arkunasha. Um, he, he, he deeply feels for the warriors under his command. And so he, he, has, a, he has a belief of, of leading from the front as it was. So, so what happens is, is that the ethereals and the water cast uh, amidst the end of the premature end of the second sphere, they really feel like they need a hero to rally around and they pick Farsight to do this. Um, this is a step outside of what is typical for the, for the Tao culture. Tao culture has a tendency of having local heroes. Um, Pure Tide, for example, while Pure Tide is uh, a vaunted teacher and an extremely accomplished commander uh, responsible for no less than three sept creations um he is he's not a let, let's put it this way he's not a household name uh for the other casts farsight is a notable difference possibly because of his successful defense of civilian centers which the tau place uh above almost almost i mean they they are obviously very protective of their ethereals but the tau as a military uh places defending civilian centers as the as the as the high point of all uh, of any of any mission or or any conflict and in the case of Delith most of it was successfully evacuated before the imperials arrived um so so farsight doing this becomes famous in in all of the castes he also has very close ties with the air caste and 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 works in conjunction with their their leadership so so again, Farsight is an exception, um, even even above Pure Tide, and as a result, when they make him this kind of, when they make him this celebrity, uh, a lot of the it, it's and this goes into the how the, um, how the government of the Tao works. All of the castes put their influence and weight behind supporting Farsight. Now, last time we talked a little bit about Brightsword, who's actually an acolyte and bondmate to farsight and served with him in the reclamation wars he he is a uh, excuse me brightsword is able to use his own context amongst the amongst the leaderships of the other castes to form a basically a mercenary army to uh prematurely attack the imperium later during this age i'm i'm, I'm bouncing around a little because it's important to understand that there is no central command to the Tao. Each sept has its own resources and its own internal government. It, in, it works in Congress with some of the other septs, but these, these, uh, these, these relationships don't seem to be regular. And that's likely because the Tao don't possess faster than light communication. So when Dalith is under attack, Dalith is alone. It petitions Sakia and Kelshan, as well as Tao itself, for help. That help doesn't actually arrive during the conflict zone. As a result, when, when the war is successfully concluded, these reinforcements arrive, but, but they don't have anything to do. Hypothetically, what this means is, is that when the, when the reclamation is declared by Anwei, these forces, which were already kind of uh, created in, in order to to accomplish a goal, they're just diverted. 
And again, this has to do with the fact that the petition was sent out and those those resources were assigned. You now have to do something with them. So they place Farsight in charge of a coalition, uh, a Shanal, if you will. And its goal is to recover the lost planets of the Dalif uh, sept systems, as well as potentially beyond um, across the Gulf. Now that's a really, really far distance, and it's the first it's the first reclamation of its kind. And there's actually no there's really no other examples of something like this, but but an, uh, enormous amounts of material from from all over the Northern Empire are given to Farsight to command, and he goes and goes on uh, like a 15-year campaign, uh, most likely uh, against orc forces, stranded, stranded imperial forces that were left behind in the wake of the pullback, um, pirates. And it is, it, is a, it is a punishing time period in which, in which the Tau are completely dedicated to bringing back those things that they lost. Again, it's never happened in the, in the empire's history at this point that we know of that something, that, that, that something like this happens. So, so it's, 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 a, it's a time of firsts. And that's likely why, and I'll say this in criticism of Farsight, Farsight was most likely not the right person to do this. Coming off of Arkunasha, Farsight is, has a chip on his shoulder. He believes that the victory at Arkunasha should have been given to him. And instead, it was given to another commander, and Farsight was responsible for a very complex, very uh, under undersupplied game of cat and mouse against the orc threat. And when he was pulled back, he he basically doesn't get over it. He 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 wanted that victory, and he didn't and he and he didn't like the fact that the ethereals basically pulled rank. And, and, and it's likely that they pulled rank because Farsight, as I said, stated earlier, is so, is so close to his men, is so, is so empathetic to their struggles that he not only leads from the front and routinely puts himself at risk, but he, he also very clearly has a psychological handicap. After Arpanasha, he paints his, he, he paints his armor red uh, in memory of the fallen and after the, uh, the, the oxide deserts in which they died on, oxide being red as well. Now, just for the record, there, there is a constant debate as to what Tau blood is. Sometimes it's red, sometimes it's blue. I believe that it's blue. I think he painted his, his armor red after, uh, after the oxide deserts. And that's stated. It's just we have conflicting canonical sources. So you have this guy who's, who's a little bit, he's, you know, I mean, he's probably suffering from PTSD. He goes right into his training with Puritide, and, and, and in, amidst his training, the largest attack from an alien force is inflicted upon the Empire. Meanwhile, his, his master also uh, kind of physically dies during this period, um, which we'll, we'll get to in another episode. But this guy is placed in charge of the largest coalition likely ever assembled short of uh, later, later events like in the Third Sphere. And he's set out and he's gone. I mean, Farsight basically never comes back from these, uh, these, this reclamation campaign. As soon as the worlds are recovered 15 years later, he engages with another threat, which are the orcs. And he, he never stops campaigning. He, 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 picks, he, 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 keeps, 
picking larger and larger fights. But again, we'll get to that in, in another episode. So, so where does that place us? So it is, it is this reclamation period. And the ethereals themselves are a little bit, you can see that there's confusion if you read between the lines. You can see that there's a lot of confusion. The ethereals are, are, are clearly also in a state of what to do. Onway is getting extremely old. Um, we know that the ethereals have a tendency of living a little, uh, living longer than uh, the Tau, which are kind of averaged between, uh, I mean, accounts kind of differ between basically 40 and 60 years. Um, but, these, but these ethereals are, are especially the, the, the senior type, uh, have a tendency of, at least the reports are that they live for hundred of, uh, hundreds of years. Again, this is, you know what, <laughs> I'm going to stop myself. Tau age, it deserves its own episode. <laughs> but the council, in response to the imperial attack, are a little bit confused as well. And that's one of the reasons why I actually think that they call, they personally call this time the Namta'a, which is the age of questioning, because I think the ethereals themselves are unsure how to proceed. Now, the original reasons why the Tau begin uh, aggressive colonization and expansion is because they know that they live in a stellar cluster. And a stellar cluster, a lot of things can go wrong. A single uh, a single stellar event can basically wipe you out um, and, and cause a kind of a, an extinction level event. That's the original first codex reason for the expansion. Um, but simultaneously, they are also uh, inter, interlinked with this notion of manifest destiny. The ethereals and the, uh, the ethereals and the Tau, and the, and the tau um, all believe that it is their, it is, it is almost their, it is the mantle of their species to unite the stars. So, so, so in contact with the Imperium, you have uh, a, kind of the first doubt creep in and the ethereals begin several, um, several initiatives in order to continue uh, the need to expand uh, that, that is also uh, contrad almost contradictory to Farsight's reclamation. Um, in the south, uh, between the septs of Deyanoi and Vasha, um, you, uh, there's a world called Landfall. And Landfall is really interesting because artifact worlds uh, are fairly frequent on, in, in this region of space. Um, they're, 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 they're extremely rare, but the Tau, within the, Tau, the boundaries of the Tau Empire, you have three containing uh, civilizations that predate the empire, but are also ancient besides themselves. Uh, are are in uh, are within a relatively close region of space, and landfall specifically uh, has a civilization that um, understood gravitational currents to a much greater extent than uh, than it seems like any other species, and uh, they carved a star chart on on a tablet, which Tao explorers later found, and then were able to decipher and follow. This results in the colonization of the most distant Tau sept um, for, for the next thousand years, which is Velcan. And Velcan is all the way in a region called the Black Reef uh, in the Jericho Reach. And it is the center point for what uh, the Fantasy Flight games are based on. But the Tau get very, very far uh, south and east from the central hub of their empire. And at least for me, um, hypothetically, Velcan Sept, which is an extremely successful uh, collection of worlds, even though it is 
very far from the Tao Empire, it is kind of like a, it's kind of like a backup plan because if something were ever to happen to the Tao Empire, uh, Velcan is so far away that it wouldn't suffer from the same the same event. So in a lot of ways, for me at least, Velcan is the is is the what if um, in the in you know it it is the it is the it is the backup, um, and any any intelligent large uh, stellar interstellar uh, civilization is going to have one of these. Um, the Imperium had it back in 30K um, in the form of Imperium Secundus, which is effectively what the realm of Ultramar is. It is, it is the mirror of Terra, so that if something happens on the western side of the galaxy, it's okay. You still have you still have the eastern side. Um, the Craft World Eldar, um, as well as the Exodites, are, are kind of the backup plan for the Eldar uh, High Empire, which which obviously gets exterminated uh, with the birth of Slanesh. Um, so it's smart that the Tau seed uh, a collection of worlds far away from uh, their their point of origin, um, and that happens during this time period. Uh, additionally, it should be noted that the largest addition to the Empire is humanity itself, and I've actually clipped this information from uh, Andy uh, Chambers, who uh, is one of the the main creators of the of the Tau race, uh, in his article on. Uh, Guevessa. Um, so human auxiliary troopers are fairly, I'll just, I'll just read it because it's, it, it kind of answers a lot of really interesting questions uh, about, uh, about humanity, but human auxiliary troopers are fairly a common sight along the western fringes of Tau space, in particular on these worlds contested during the Damocles Crusade. The Tau proved a hardier foe than anticipated by the Imperial forces and, as the offensive became stalled, they were forced to withdraw in response to the far greater threat presented by the Hive fleets. The rapid redeployment left many human soldiers stranded, and this situation was specifically exploited by the now famous Commander Farsight as he followed in the wake of the retreating human fleet. He offered those that were left behind uh, the stark choice between integration of the Tau Empire or a bleak future as prisoners of war. The, the article goes on, and I'll post a link. But it's important to note that the biggest, if we're if we're talking about uh, alien races joining the empire, the when humanity joins, they do so in a in a fashion that was never done before. Which is, it's not it's not worlds that are being integrated at this point. It is almost exclusively military personnel and extremely uh, veteran uh, personnel. This leads to the Tau being able to tap into a new population source. And part of this age of recl uh, reclamation and the interim wars um, see humanity both generationally start forgetting the Imperium. They are given colonial rights. Uh, the worlds that are reclaimed by uh, Farsight are some of them are given to humans, and the the generation the 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 grandchildren and children of these individuals will grow up completely integrated into the the Tau culture uh, and will be known later as the Janissaries, uh, which are kind of an elite formation of human warriors, which, which are given, uh, you know, basically fire warrior technology, um, but are also given access to crisis suits. Um, most notably, as I stated before, Guevessa Ovadim, who is a former inquisitor. It's just, it's, it's really, really interesting because we don't see Krut piloting XVs. Obviously their culture is a little bit different, but there is no Vespid version of a crisis suit, but humans are, are given access to it. So pretty, pretty intriguing. Um, 
Another thing is is that as as Farsight is ex, uh, is is expanding or, or I guess reclaiming these worlds that are lost, another colony called Cronus, which eventually shows up in the game Dawn of War, uh, shows him defeating orc uh, an orc outpost and and inventing uh, inventing the the combined arms approach of using crisis suits with Vespid. And uh, it's pretty it's pretty intriguing how Farsight uh, makes such extensive use of auxiliary forces since there is uh, there is this notion that Farsight for some reason doesn't like uh, auxiliaries. Obviously that's that's because in the original codex he was not allowed to have crew because he's he was he's cut off. But there is no there's no sign that that Farsight is a xenophobe. We do know that Farsight uh, just places the those races that have joined the greater good and Tau and the Tau Empire itself above the importance of uh, ex, uh, expand, uh, bringing more races into uh, into the empire. He's he he's said many times that trying to convince the orcs, for example, or the or the Space Marines, or even the Imperium at this point is kind of a waste of time. Um, which is very much against what the ethereals stand for. So, so we get into this this period where the the Imperium and and the Empire is supposed to be at peace with one another. They're supposed to, uh, or not maybe not peace, but there is supposed to be a ceasefire. And almost immediately, within within two years of the of the of the Damocles Crusades dissolution, we have the War of Neotech. Um, the Mechanicus. Um, and 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 to, everybody should remember that the Adeptus Mechanicus, while while it is technically a part of the Imperium, it is really the second head of that uh, Aquila. The Martian realm, the Martian Forge worlds, are there. They are very independent from the Imperial uh, government, and there, while there is a lot of inter intertwining between the two. Uh, it is it is an alliance. They are not this. They shouldn't be considered ever uh, to be operating in tandem with one another. So a Adeptus Mechanicus exploratory fleet um, attacks the world of Vesio. Uh, Vesio is 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 a is a very resource rich planet. Um, it is likely to be somewhere on the on the imperial side of the Damocles Gulf. And the Tau are unable to to hold on to it, and the planet is is effectively pillaged. The reason why I bring this up because, and I'm not going to bring up uh, all of the conflicts that happen because uh, because I mean we we could we could sit here for hours. But this is the first this is the first example that the Tau um, do not in, initiate uh, initiate com, uh, like a cessation of the of the ceasefire. And attack the Imperium, and there's going to be dozens of examples of the Tau basically being inflicted by Imperial agents or Imperial forces, and really being unable, or, or excuse me, and choosing to. Uh, well, you know what? Maybe it's not a choice, but are unable or choose to not uh, to engage with the Imperium, and that will build to a head over over the next two centuries. Um, I'll also bring up that the Tau also clearly uh, do not do not think very highly of the ceasefire, at least on an individual level, because you do start seeing um, you do start seeing individual actions, such as in 763 through uh, 820, you have uh, a large force of Tau mercenaries. Um, we don't know very much about them, 
but they are seen operating with piratical forces in the Imperium, uh, specifically at the pa uh, the planet Penary Four, where they they're they're involved in the sacking of an Imperial planet. But they are noted as being mercenaries, um, and and there is no there is no commander listed in charge of them. So um, kind of intriguing. We also uh, expand into Tau explorers. Um, I'm not going to say infiltrating, but at least moving uh, around Imperial planets in the Eastern fringes. Um, one of one of Poro Viorla Kovashmien, she's uh, off, uh, grandchildren, um, uh, who's named oddly uh, Porwi Kais, is seen um, is seen operating within the uh, the the uh, amongst imperial worlds uh, as traders uh, as much as it seems as explorers. So, so so the the border it, the the border between the Imperium and the Tau are it's not a hard border and it's very there, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, okay, so a, a couple key things to keep in mind for everybody uh, during this period. It's also very much an introduction of the Tau on the main stage of Warhammer 40,000. We have the first contact between Tau forces and uh, the demonic uh, in 793, in which the entire colony of Shaanesh uh, is, is wiped out by cornate demons. This, I, I bring this up because this contradicts the, at least in essence, it contradicts uh, what the Farsight books bring up, which is that the Ethereals, for some reason, are trying to hide the existence of uh, th that they're trying to hide the existence of the demon, the, the demonic or or warp entities from the greater Tau population. When we clearly have events like this and others, uh, for example, Kelshen uh, comes under attack um, shortly uh, shortly after this by Slaneshi Chaos Space Marines. And the the commander um, who fights them is is uh, is is kind of is is very is very much uh, revolted by what he finds. But his his teachings and his reflections are taught in uh, the Sakia War Academies. So and he recounts all kinds of uh, Slaneshi demons that are enthralled to these Space Marines. So I don't I don't think that it makes very much sense to believe that the um, believe that the first that, that the, the ethereals are trying to hide um, demons from from the greater population. It, it doesn't seem to make very much sense, at least not to me. So, so the Ultramarines also recognize that the Tau are a legitimate threat. In 799, they begin to forder their eastern borders. Um, there is no conflict stated, which again, this makes me think that the number of Tau agents and the Tau ability to proliferate their technology in the form of trade is, is beginning to become a problem. Remember, um, on Imperial worlds, you are not allowed to, I mean, in, some, in most cases, you're not even allowed to know that, that aliens exist, if you can believe it or not. Um, so the fact that there are often uh, Tau drones or tau technology that begin to show up on imperial worlds it's it it is a it, it is a it's an insidious threat very much like um the spread of chaos cults for example um 
and the ultramarines in 70, 799 conceivably understand this. So, um, so moving on, we, uh, we have, we have a, a few more events that are important before we get to, um, to High Fleet Gorgon. <clears throat> we have the, in 813, we have the first contact with the Necrons. Um, the Necrons up until this point have not, uh, have not been known by the Tau. Um, and the destruction of their world of Canavar is a really big deal. Canavar is one of these worlds that was uh, inching towards Septhood. Please remember that uh, not all Tau planets are known as Septs. Um, there are 83 worlds at this time, and again, only about a dozen or so uh, of what we would call Tau Sept uh, Prime worlds. Um, but there, but 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 planets that garner enough cultural individuality and resources and um, and 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 kind of distinction um, are able to then be recognized as Septs. Um, one of them is Canavar, and its destruction is 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 hard felt. The Necrons themselves, uh, which are known as Montrey or Deathwalkers in the Tau uh, lexicon, um, are are almost immediately regarded as there. There, there is no. There, there, there are very few rec uh, direct accounts of this, but but they are recognized by the Tau as extremely lethal, and that's likely due to the. And you can kind of hear it in uh, in the Dawn of War games when whenever the Tau come in contact with Necron forces, um, they are uh, they're I think they're impressed as much as terrified by the by the technological abilities that the Necrons have. Um, remember that the Necrons don't use warp tech for any of their stuff, um, which means that likely the Tau, specifically the Earthcast, probably are able to understand how the Necrons are are doing things, uh, or, or at least they understand the science behind it. They just don't understand how they're able to accomplish it. Uh, mass teleportation, for example, Goss weapon itself, uh, the Goss weapons themselves, which you know, erase uh, targets that are hit, um, planet-sized ships, you know, go, you can go on and on. And there is, uh, there is no, none of that warp magic, you know, oh, it's just the warp, that's how they did it. Like the Necrons are, are the embodiment of the physical universe. And I think the Tau are very much uh, impressed and frightened by what they see. Um, so as, as things are intensifying um, about 50 years after the, the end of the Damocles Gulf Crusade, we have our first big event, and that's called the, the War of Dhaka. As I mentioned before, um, Farsight has now successfully accomplished uh, reclaiming those worlds lost to the Tau Empire, but he comes in contact with uh, orc pirates, uh, which which owe fealty to Grog Ironteeth, uh, which is the who is the 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 kind of the orc uh, war chief of this kingdom called Alsanta. Um, he has become aware of Farsight, and and remember that. Whenever the orcs uh, engage with uh, what they regard as a good fight, they they start becoming attracted to that area, that region. Um, it is unclear, but it, it there's never a, a stated direct connection. But it's likely that Alsantan greenskins were responsible for the destruction of the Krut Empire, and with the rise of Farsight, you have the counterbalance of Grog Ironteeth who looks at this region of space and suddenly realizes that there's a, there's a really great fight to be fought. 
So Farsight, it, 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 it's mentioned in several sources that Farsight uses Exterminatus, which again is a big, uh, it's a big red flag. You're not supposed to do that as a Tau commander. Um, the Tau don't, don't, don't like the use of Exterminatus level weapons, even though they have them. But Farsight uh, commits to using it several, uh, several times against these uh, Orc Waz um, or migrations that are moving into uh, his area of space. And he's continuing to persecute a, a war against uh, against the Greenskins. Uh, he, at this point, he has now colonized what will later become the Enclaves um, and, and engaged in a, if you read the Orc Codex, what is, what is described as uh, almost a, a losing war against the Orcs, because no matter how many Waz he defeats, um, which is listed as two, um, there's just more and more Orcs coming. But most interestingly, and this is really where I, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by the person that Farsight is, as well as the Empire's reaction to these events. Because the, the Empire suffers now as a result of Farsight's decision. The War of Dhaka represents a massive invasion uh, from Grog Iron Teeth. He explodes out of the Vorak Belt, um, which, is a, which is a large uh, asteroid field on the western periphery of the Tau Empire. and destroys the planet, well, effectively uh, purges the planet of Atari, though, another one of these extremely uh, populated planets. It's said that billions die in his assault on the planet. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, he sends forces to engage against the Kelshan. Now, the Kelshan at this point uh, are in, a, in an active state of, uh, of colonization. And it, it never recovers from this invasion. The Sept of Kelshan effectively has to stop expanding uh, its, its own influence. Um, and, and I can only imagine what that psychologically does to a people, that their borders are effectively hardened by the fact that they, they border the Pertus Rift, which is already kind of a rolling hellscape of pirates and chaos entities and, and so on and so forth. Uh, that now on their northwestern border, they have to they have to now engage with uh, with an orc with a series of orc pirate fleets, which which steal their ship, which, which they they hijack their vessels, um, they destroy their colony fleets, uh, and they lay siege to several uh, planets successfully. Um, Kelshen never re uh, stays on the defensive after this point. Um, and, and what happens to them later is, is also pretty awful. But as you can see, because, because Farsight continued this war against the orcs, he basically put the Tau on the map for Grog Iron Teeth. And as a result, Atari Vo is sacrificed. Farsight him, uh, likely Farsight realizes what he's done, or, or perhaps he doesn't realize what he's done, but he actually returns to the Empire uh, for the first time, um, after after being effectively forgotten, he's been gone for for uh, for for several decades at this point. Um, and even in this moment, he is he's uh, outsmarted by Grog. Grog Grog's massive attack against the Empire was effect effectively a massive fake out, um, um, a, a, a kind of an orc version of perhaps a Kayan tactic. Because when Farsight leaves the, uh, his colonies, 
Grog uh, kind of does a quick reverse and assaults uh, assaults those worlds directly. And Farsight is forced to abandon the Empire for a second time. So imagine this: like you see Farsight, right? He, he's this, you know, he's a warrior that's kind of out of time. He he shouldn't really be here. It's been it's been fifty years after his departure, uh, and he he shows up. You don't really know what to think. Like imagine if you're from the perspective of the Empire, um, you're fighting this. Uh, you're fighting an an orc invasion of unparalleled size uh, and and then all of a sudden Farsight leaves again. So this this abandonment really kind of, I think, at least from, from my perspective, really engenders like uh, a sense of this is not, this was the wrong person to pick to be our hero. And I think that that is why Anva, who at this point has ascended to ethereal prime of the High Council, um, he, I think that this is where he realizes that that he made a mistake because he was the person that put put the uh, he gave the keys to the car uh, to to Farsight and uh, well now Farsight's driving all over town uh, crashing into crashing into people's houses, <laughs> um, but but Farsight leaves again and and continues to fight this war against Grog um, now. Now the empire at this point is it it enters into a state of prolonged conflict. You've got orcs on the west as well as the north. Um, you have several space marine-led uh, attacks, which are devastating. I will I will just say that um, the space marines um, have a tendency. I mean, we all know that the space marines are, are are a terrifying force, but but they're also very small. So again, instead of like a full-on armed conflict against the Imperium, you have almost like a shadow war or uh, or a cold war where where you know small units are operating against one another um and uh and you and you just you 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 you're not able to kind of draw a line in the sand because again the borders between both nations are very porous so so space wolves um uh, as well as uh as well as several engagements of those mentioned uh, scar lord space marines who have never really left they're they're operating within the empire's borders they're you know doing hit and runs and stuff like that they uh they continue to attack tau outposts um or hinder tau colonial efforts and again from the tau perspective colonization is is their is their way of life and so to attack that is to attack uh, that manifest destiny that i mentioned earlier on um so i'll end this period with 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 the formal uh the formal year in which farsight left because that that ends the first half of the uh of the time of questioning um, by the way, the name of that uh, third uh, artifact world is Arthas, uh, Arthas Malak. And while Farsight is seemingly returning from the War of Dhaka, he, uh, he ends up on this, this planet in 825. Um, and this, this is a, a kind of... I'm going to say that there are many uh, there are many versions of what happens here. Obviously, we have the books now, but originally nothing nothing was really known about about what happened exactly here, other than the fact that this planet, which has its history, actually goes back all the way to well, uh, 
the 30, the Warhammer 30K. Um, but beings of chaos were somehow killed his ethereals. There were, there were three ethereals with Farsight and they're assassinated. And rather than return to the empire after this happens, um, Farsight basically cuts the tether a few years later in, uh, in 820, or actually one year later in 826 and never returns to the empire. Um, he, he, he forever uh, goes and, and he actually establishes the enclaves um, in his name. So they become the Farsight enclaves rather than the, rather than the, uh, the colonies lost uh, to the second sphere. Um, and, and why this is a good place to kind of stop for a moment in case anybody would like to bring up something, but what, what this represents to the empire, I think, again, is, is a, is, is a betrayal in, in the harshest sense of the word. Uh, Farsight was endowed with, with enormous responsibility and great power. And what he did with it was pursue his own version of what he thinks the greater good is. The, the Tao of the Enclaves, um, I will say, likely don't, likely don't have strong opinions about the Empire. I know everybody is always trying to like deepen the, the gap between Farsight and the Ethereals, but it, what it really is, is is that it's a philosophical, uh, a philosophical problem. The Ethereals of the Empire are operating from a kind of a bird's eye view, and that's how they 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 govern through setting mandates, which is something I say a lot on this podcast um, and during these tag, TED talk, these Tao talks. Uh, the the Ethereals see the big picture; they see it from the earth, water, air, and fire cast. They're seeing all of what's going on, and then they and then they have their their overall arcing principle of expansion and how to how to accomplish that and and how to unite all of the alien races of the galaxy to work together. That's, that's what the greater good is. And Farsight, who had this, you know, this, 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 this kind of PTSD when, when, he, when he was pulled back from Arthas Malat, or excuse me, from Arkunasha, um, he turned the greater good into what he thinks he thinks is best. So in my opinion, uh, Farsight likely thinks that what he's doing is for the benefit of his entire species. He probably thinks of the enclaves as like a shield to to prevent another imperial crusade happening or or an orc invasion. But but because he does not possess the ability to see the world from that 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 bird's eye view that the ethereals have from all the cast's perspectives, he is he is he is solving the problem by being a hammer and viewing the world as nails. You know, he is seeing everything from a, an engagement potential uh, or a target rich environment perspective where the way that he's going to prevent the Tao empire from suffering is by pacifying or in many cases, absolutely annihilating the enemies of the Tao empire. And more importantly, what he thinks is the enemies of the Tao empire. Um, as a result, he is only weakening the empire um, until 150 years or a, a, a little bit under 150 years after this, um, orc, the orc threat actually becomes entrenched within the empire again. 
after it was successfully contained during the second sphere. So he actually creates that situation because more and more orcs pour into the, 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 the region. Um, meanwhile, the imperial threat continues to be a problem, but then most importantly, and we'll get to this right after we take a brief, um, a brief uh, uh, discussion pause, uh, High Fleet Gorgon will smash into the Eastern Empire um, and Kelshan will be the sacrificial lamb for uh, for Atal, um, but we'll get that, we'll get into that in just a moment. Would anybody we've got a uh, would anybody like to bring up anything? Yeah, Bossman, I will invite you up. All right. Um, so I don't want to get too into Farsight, why he <laughs> did what he did, things like that, because we have an episode on him. Like we yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be able to talk for a while uh, just on his betrayal, on his ethics, things like that. So I'm going to keep away from that for a second and kind of just point at uh, an interesting similarity, I guess, between the Imperium and the Tau Empire. So during the, um, during the uh, Damocles Gulf Crusade, we see that Dalith is very much left to win or lose on its own. It's obviously generals are sent, obviously some troops are sent, but due to the very federal nature of the Tau as a as an organization at this point, they can't really centralize a response. They can't force everyone to come until it's pretty much already too late to make an impact. And then once the Tau start pushing back with these wars of reclamation, pushing back into Imperial space, we see that same failure to respond from the very federal Imperium. Um, the Tau are obviously bordering uh, the realm of Ultramar. And so basically anyone outside of Ultramar views the Tau as Ultramar's problem. Mm. Uh, and even much of the core of Ultramar, including likely uh, the forces on McCrag, kind of feel that this is a border territories problem to deal with. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this kind of shifting the problem off to somebody else. And uh, it, this continues until you get to the individual border territories who have no one to shift the problem onto and are kind of left with the with the realization that no one's going to help them. That yeah, um, the, the I, Imperium I, okay. has the Imperium has decided that they're okay with with losing that territory. That they're okay with keeping garrisons light on that eastern border so that they can deal with hive fleets or uh, orc wogs or something like that. Hmm. And this is this is what causes a lot of human colonies to defect. It's this idea that um, no one is coming for you. No one is going to save you. And you can either you can either die fighting in a pointless but glorious manner, or you can defect. Sure, and and again, from the official, from, at least from the perspective of Carduniash, which is Carduniash is the is the segmentum uh, capital. Uh, um, it's uh, it's it's where it's where Battlefleet. Uh, what is it? The uh, yeah, a Battlefleet Ultima is is state is headquarters is stationed. Um, from their perspective. Um, the there is a ceasefire, right? Um, there, there is there, there is a document that that uh, Admiral Jalak, uh, as well as several Space Marines, signed with this alien race to uh, 
to 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 kind of uh, have a have a loose promissory note of of not not engaging with each other. So, from an official, just like as you said, from an official standpoint, these imperial sectors, um, the timber subsector, which is which is the uh, the the border of the Lathesh sector, um, which is the, the the edge of the Imperium that that borders with with the Tao Empire. Um, there is no there's no there's no reason to think that there's ever going to be another official response, and it, and that it is just border conflicts, right? Um, to the larger entities that exist, like the Inquisition. I mean, the Inquisition doesn't care who is a planetary governor or or even maybe Space Marine chapter masters, uh, they are going to persecute their own agendas as need be. And we see that with, uh, with during the Gulf Crusade itself with uh, Inquisitor Grant. So, um, so I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting period. Meanwhile, from the Tau perspective, I would imagine that they think they're engaging with uh, a cohesive entity, right? Like when they... When they have a problem, I mean, just look at that example of when an ethereal uh, on, I believe, Tashvar uh, talks to the Imperial Fist, uh, and uh, and the uh, and the and the ambassador that comes with him uh, that comes with him from uh, from Nimbosa, like they the 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 tower under the impression that when they talk to an ambassador, that that ambassador has some kind of an authority to speak on behalf of the Imperium. And really, no one does. Nobody speaks on behalf of the Imperium. And that's probably endlessly frustrating for the Tau. Um, yeah. So, so, so let's get into High Fleet Gorgon. Um, boss man, cool? Cool. So, so High Fleet Gorgon is I, probably my favorite part of the time of questioning. And the lead up to that is, is really, so High Fleet Gorgon is, is, a, is kind of a splinter, uh, a splinter fleet that evolved into being its own, uh, its own High Fleet. It is regarded uh, as being um, hyper evolutionary and it, it starts being detected in 897 um, by uh, by imperial outposts, which which uh, which identify it, codify it, and then do not warn the Tau that it's coming. It is one of the things that's that's important about understanding High Fleet Gorgon is that at around the same time, you have the first instances of gene stealer cults being identified, kind of loosely identified by by the Tau Empire itself. Um, but they don't know what they are. And this is the same mistake that early imperial, uh, imperial authorities made. A lot of, I think up until the attack on McCrag, the gene stealers were regarded as just an alien parasitic race with no relationship to, to, uh, to the Tyranids. Um, but we do start seeing their Ill infiltration uh, all the way, I mean, really all the way back to potentially like millennium 37 and perhaps it was these early uh early gene stealers uh that 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 orchestrated the initial uh, advances of the high fleets into the galaxy proper so in 897 high Fle high fleet gorgon is identified by by the imperials um who do not warn that the tau that it's it's coming um the tau themselves 
a few years later realize that something is wrong when they start when they start losing contact with their with with their trading partners um, in the southern regions of the Pertus Rift. So remember that the Pertus Rift um, is not a warp storm. It's a, it's there 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 are warp storms in it, which is what, how it gets its name. But it is actually home to dozen. I think I think seven distinct alien uh, alien colonies or alien civilizations. One of them being the Krut, for example. Another of them is the Ulamathites. And the Ulamathites, who have the Ulamathaic League, are a effect. I mean, by by accounts, are are a are a very strong trading partner with the Tau. Um, they don't they don't seem to have ever been a member race. They 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 are just on paper allies. Um, but in eight ninety nine, they start fighting High Fleet Gorgon. Um, and their and their society is riven with gene stealer cults, which rise up as they do, and uh, and basically dismantle the the defenses from within. Now we know that uh, we know that the the Tau as well as the Ulamathites uh, um, uh, quor- basically quarantine their homeworld, but it's unclear as to what happened to them after that. High Fleet Gorgon continues on its way. It 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 gorges itself on those on those worlds in the region, and it crosses the Pertus Rift into a region of space um, called uh, w- w- well that likely was once part of Kelshan's colonial uh, col- colonial initiatives. Um, Again, if you look at a map of the Tau Empire, and, and I'll post one, um, it's really, it's it's interesting because Kelshen was likely expanding its own borders and its own colonies um, into the, basically to form like a like a border for the Pertus Rift. And Kelshen is right next to a, a sept called Atal. And we talked about Atal last episode. Atal is where... Uh, Tau all over the empire go to or or are given the 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 option to retire, and it's effectively a series of uh, what what in the Imperium we would call paradise worlds, or at least at least ideal uh, ecosystems where where the Tau kind of live out the rest of their days. And the Tau are incredible. It's noted in the newest codex. The Tau are incredibly protective of their of their elders. And we know that the way that Tau hierarchy works is that um, whoever is eldest or, or whoever has the most senior uh, position um, is uh, is in, is over is in charge. So clearly, the, the Tau, from a cultural from a cultural perspective, uh, very much value their the, the uh, their elderly. Um, Kelshan, which. There is no, I mean, everybody knows that Kelshan has this, and in my in my opinion, a very well deserved uh, reputation for distrusting aliens. If you, I mean, if you just look at their track record, uh, they've 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 had all kinds of uh, atrocities inflicted on them. But um, but we don't know much about their 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 let's call it their their true culture or their initial culture. And I like to think. That with its proximity to Dalith, the Kelshan might have been uh, colonized by Dalithians, 
um, which would mean that initially they were likely very open to aliens, um, very, uh, uh, very expansionistic. Delith is one of the, in terms of just uh, planetary counts, Delith is, is one of the densest of the septs. And, uh, and, and there's no reason to think that Kelshan was anything different, uh, short, of, short of the fact that over time, um, after orc invasions and chaos invasions and so on, they they likely have abandoned that notion. So so when High Fleet Gorgon begins to literally eat the worlds on Kelshan's eastern frontier, they set, they they're very quick to send uh, a, a fleets uh, to try to stop it, not realizing the enormity of what a High Fleet is, and they center their defense on one this one of their most uh, promising colonies, and, and likely their eldest colony, uh, after, of course, Kelshan Prime itself, which is, was a planet called Shadreg. Shadreg is, uh, which roughly translates into, uh, like, wind of, uh, wind of opportunity. Um, it, it is, it is, it is, that, it has a large population, it has a lot of facilities, it is a very, very, um, established uh, world, probably on its way to Septhood. And um, the Kelshani uh, Admiral Valroth, uh, when, when he arrives at Shadreg, it is, it is, it, it, it very quickly, uh, I think all of the Tau present really realize that they are dealing with an alien threat, unlike, unlike anything ever seen before. Um, there is a very brief, very vicious battle in which many Tau sacrifice themselves in the hopes of trying to buy Shadreg more time, but the lunar complexes uh, above the planet are uh, are just are 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 overwhelmed. Um, I mean, if you th- these are these are all of those very awesome Black Library descriptions of. Uh, of 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 when the Tyranids come in, it, it is just it is bodies upon bodies. It's a lo- it's a locust storm, and they just pick the outer defenses clean. Um, Shadrag itself is engaged. Um, the Tau, in a, in a per- perhaps it's because of the speed at which Gorgon lands. Um, the Tau are known for giving up ground relatively quickly, but I think that this is another indication of how the Kelshani are different in that they refuse to give up ground. And perhaps it's to their detriment, but they, in, instead of pulling back, such as, such as what they did with Dalith, instead of pulling back from Shadreg, they pour more, uh, reinforcements, uh, more reinforcements into it. And um, notably, the Krut from, um, from the southern uh, colonies of the, uh, of the former Krut Empire uh, send reinforcements to help them, um, and they uh, they are they are massacred. Uh, the Krut suffer probably one of their largest defeats in in uh, since their since their joining of the Tau Empire. Um, what happens after that is uh, kind of a, a a massive a massive rout um, with uh, with with several Tau commanders opting. Uh, opting to stay behind uh, in 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 effectively uh, what could be con- what could be kind of described as like a mass uh, 
monad um, uh, configuration. Uh, remember that monad um, is not just a way of war. It's initially, uh, monad is a, almost like a psychosis that enters into the fire warrior mindset that uh, they become obsessed with, uh, with wanting to inflict harm on the things that are hurting them um, or, or who have killed their bondmates or, or who have... Uh, uh, who have who have entered into a state where they 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 are no longer compatible with the larger uh, the larger community. Um, in my opinion, I think Farsight kind of suffered a version of this. It's basically kind of like that a fire warrior version of PTSD. And the way that they purge themselves of these feelings is that they operate. They they know that they are loose cannons, and so they try to get it out of their system by by engaging in kind of lone lone wolf pattern. Uh, formations. Now imagine that on a much larger scale with the firecast leadership of Shadreg opting to stay and fight the Tyranids to the last. Now we don't have any mention of Ethereals present. Um, most likely they were evacuated, but this is another example of what Tau society is like without the stewardship of the Ethereals. Um, the fire warriors are are perhaps the most most like humanity in that um, in that they they opt for uh, su you know suicide missions and things like that. But I will also say that these Shadragians um, and Kalshani allies they they are also potentially experiencing a level of loss in which the Tau do not know how to cope with initially. The Tyranids are not just killing things; they are they are consuming them. They are stripping whole worlds uh, clean of all life, and they are doing it on such a mass level that perhaps this is in, in, an indication of the level of psychosis that the firecast who are responsible for protecting their society and their culture and their civilization um, do not know how to comprehend this, this loss. And so what ends up happening is a kind of a mass uh, suicidal charge. Um, which, which, frankly, does not work, and High Fleet Gorgon just overruns and destroys Shadreg um, to the point that after only after only about a about two years, um, this planet is is lost, um, and 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 what what the air cast which are kind of left holding the bag do is that they 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 force um they force the remaining fire warriors uh to to get on board their ships and pull back uh to to safe space um now during this time uh which which even though the planet is is being abandoned uh, one uh, one of the remaining command. I will say that one of the remaining commanders, uh, Chassel Vorka, um, is able to uh, is able to successfully disrupt enough of these synapse creatures so that at least Gorgon doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't basically follow the Tau immediately and actually has to take time to reassemble uh, its leadership system and and its synapse network. Um, this this is the saving grace for the air cast because it allows them to pull back. Um, and remember, the Tau don't have faster than light communications, so their ships traveling are 
are actually the things that that provide communication to the rest of the empire. Um, when they reach Kelshan, two things happen. One, Kelshan uh, agrees to receive the brunt of this attack. Um, and so there's a series of holding actions and luring of, remember, remember Kaon, uh, uh, luring actions, which will bring the high fleet Gorgon to Kelshan rather than going, uh, into the Autol Sept, which is just, which is actually, if you look, if you look at, again, if you look at the map, um, the trajectory of high fleet Gorgon was going to be from Shadreg. They were just going to barrel into, uh, uh, Atal. Instead, what happens is, is that it is diverted into the heart of, Kel of the Kelshan Sept. And for me, this represents a level of sacrifice that I, I do wish more people understood how, um, you know, how honorable it was for these people who have only ever suffered at the, you know, at the hands of the alien to then do so again. Um, now, at the time, because... Be, be, because they, uh, because of the sacrifices of Shadreg, uh, a mass evacuation uh, takes place. Uh, the Ethereal Council, uh, council uh, is is uh, uh, as well as the worlds of Kamas uh, and Hosarn, which are which again are are part of Ke uh, Kel uh territories, uh, are successfully pulled back and 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 brought far from from the Sept Prime. Um, a similar, kind of a similar action uh, of what happened with uh, Delith during the Crusade. Um, but that doesn't stop several, uh, several more worlds from falling. Um, and perhaps, perhaps in a, in a weird twist of fate, you actually have the arrival of, uh, of, uh, of, a, of, of, of basically a, um, a series of transport ships that are carrying Imperial Guardsmen, which, which get lost in the warp and come out uh, uh, amidst this battle. They were, they're not only are they blown off course, but they're, they're almost a hundred years, uh, 150 years late uh, to the Damocles Gulf Crusade. Um, they assess the situation. Uh, conceivably, the, these Imperials didn't even know what Tyranids were because they were absent uh, to, from the Battle of McCrag, but per, they they end up uh, forming a kind of not, I'm not going to say an alliance, but uh, they parlay again with uh, the Kelshani and both Imperial and Tau forces uh, prepare and weather the assault uh, as Gorgon uh, falls uh, on Kelshan Prime itself. Um, this peace treaty or 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 nego you know these negotiations um, will fall apart, um, and eventually the Imperials will turn on the Kelshani. Uh, on Kelshan itself. Um, we don't know very much about that event, but um, again, it just represents another sacrifice that these Tau make for the Empire. Um, <clears throat> the story of, of Gorgon attacking Kelshan is probably best for another day, but needless to say, um, the Dominatrix, uh, as well as the Hive Tyrant, these are the two elements that are required uh, to keep the momentum of a Hive Fleet going. Uh, both are slain eventually, um, and and while Gorgon is a is as I mentioned is is hyper evolved and 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 continues to evolve throughout all of this, um, 
it it kind of overextends itself and it it ends up uh leading down evolutionary dead ends where it becomes so focused on countering one weapon that the tau throw at them and by the way the tau are constantly this is this is when the Taunar is uh, is invented, as well as several classes and designations of Tau crisis suits are specifically created in order to fight the Tyranids. Um, so it's uh, it's it's almost like a war of evolution. Um, Gorgon ends up reaching a dead end and can and can no longer fight the combinations that the Tau are using, but um, but as a result, Kelshan is saved. Uh, the the resulting uh, the resulting technologies that come out of this conflict are incredible, um, but at the sacrifice of you know untold billions of of Tau and their allies, and of course right after right after um, the Battle of Worldspine Ridge, which happens uh, two years after Kelshan is invaded, um, only only results in uh, the Iron Hammer campaign. Uh, which it's it's only a single uh, a single entry in the Tyranid Codex, but it is regarded as the greatest military confrontation yet seen between the Imperium and the Tau Empire. So that's that's pretty. I mean, we, again, we don't know anything about that, but all of this is happening on Kelshan Prime, and it's it's an, it's it's such it's such a strong indication again of the levels of which the Firecast and specifically all the casts of this particular sept will go to for their empire. Um, and that brings us to the closing years of the time of questioning. So, so to kind of reset the stage again, we have, we have this, um, we have this period of, uh, of, of high, high conflict and, and a lot of, a lot, unimaginable loss. And yet in the closing years, the Tau Empire suffers yet again. And, and I, say this, I say this because again, there's, there's this impression that Tau have some kind of plot armor. They suffer, I, I would say that the Tau suffer um, their fair share in, uh, in, the, you know, in, the, in the history of 40K. Um, what happens after Gorgon is, is, is finally defeated uh, is you have uh, a final um, a final uh, rising of the the uh, of of both the conflict with the Imperials. Um, there there is uh, an ethereal that uh, of Nadras that's kidnapped, um, and that's the basis for the Xenology book. Uh, as well as you have the uh, events on Dalimar, where um, Space Marines uh, of the Ravens Guard chapter. I believe the Raven Raven's Guard chapter capture an ethereal and bring him to uh, the world of Dalimar, and the Tau finally, finally are exhausted, and and uh, on O Kathlan, who is the ethereal prime of the Tau sept, uh, and sits on the High Council, finally finally declares that the ceasefire uh, should be annulled. Um, open conflict is inevitable after this, and. I'm always intrigued by this because it it very much dovetails with uh, perhaps on Vaz overall strategy in that perhaps what was needed uh, is 200 years of relative rebuilding. Yes, you have uh, the unexpected losses of Shadreg uh, and the, and Kelshan, 
Um, yes, you have the War of Dhaka in which the Northern Empire is invaded by one of the largest orc laws in Eastern French history. Um, but ultimately the, the, the true interior and the first, uh, a lot of the first sphere steps are relatively unscathed in this period, which allows them uh, to have an enormous buildup of material and warriors. Um, and perhaps, just perhaps, this is the meta strategy of Anva to give the Tao Empire the breathing room to rebuild what was lost, reorient, and spend two centuries uh, infiltrating the the imperial uh, territories around them, so that, and and obviously we'll we'll get to it, but the inevitable third sphere expansion um, is able to accomplish something that the second sphere was never prepared to, and that is the mass. Uh, let's call it the mass invasion and mass conversion of uh, almost double uh, the size of the of the second sphere um, in the form of of almost entirely imperial worlds, and they do this with a combination of di diplomacy and the direct invasion of a of a hive planet itself, which is a which is a world called a called a Grelin. Um but. But this, but from the perspective, from from boots on the ground perspective, I think that individually, or even even from the pr perspective of local command groups, the Tao likely are experiencing a sense of exasperation and impotency at the fact that they cannot engage with the Imperials. And so, when that ethereal is kidnapped, that's that's the last straw. And all over just just before uh before things heat up to the third sphere you have uh you have all all over um the empire you have uh, a different planetary initiatives such as the gravelax incident um which you can read about in for the emperor uh, for the emperor it's um it's a Siathus Kane book and it's fantastic but um the tau ambassadors um to these planets Kind of turn it up a notch and begin to begin to begin to make moves that the Tau have been wait, seemingly waiting um, or or been hampered uh, so that they can't uh, for the last two hundred years. Um, and what's 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 great about this is that the Tau start having a much more Warhammer forty thousand perspective to things that they know that they're going to have to play dirty and they do so. Um, for the last 50 years, you have a, a couple key points to keep in mind is that you have uh, outright war uh, declared against um, several, uh, several ultramarine uh, units uh, and, and companies, uh, such as uh, in, uh, in the Six Hour War, in which, in which the ultramarines are are just are, are, are straight up engaged. And it's, the, it's kind of the first time, other than the Iron Hammer campaign, which we can't really call uh, an imperial conflict because these were uh, these were late coming imperials. They were you know, their their mindset is that they were on crusade still. The Six Hour War is is a is a battle between the Ultramarines' first company um, and the and a and a Tau uh, garrison, and it is uh, it's it really represents the 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 Ultramarines' 
uh, remember I said that they were hardening their border. Uh, this represents their first um, attack to hamper the Tau. So they, at this point in 913, the Ultramarines realize that the Tau are a threat. Meanwhile, the Tau realize that they don't, the, that the ceasefire is, is, isn't worth the paper it was printed on. Um, meanwhile, you also have uh, the, the engagement of Borkhan, uh, assault on Borkhan in 939, um, in which uh, the Imperials, perhaps sensing that the war is going to go hot, um, begin um, tactically uh, assassinating Tau specialists. And the, uh, they do this with, uh, unfortunately for the Tau, very great success in the form of the 196th Iodin Griffins, which, uh, which infiltrate the Tau Empire and attack a, a, a basically I, um, uh, uh, attack the, the Sept world of Borkhan and, and pick out the Earth cast um, teacher and students. Um, and so they, I mean, it's an atrocity um, and they kill an entire generation of, uh, uh, of earth cast scientists. It's, it's pretty awful. These uh, in return, the, uh, the Iodin Griffins are, are wiped out. Um, meanwhile, uh, you do have the, uh, a further uh, conflict with the Ultramarines um, at a planet called Malbid. Um, again, uh, this is an example of the Ultramarines fully recognizing the threat of the Tau. Um, they, now, they work together at Malbid ultimately because a, a, an army of Necrons is uh, awoken. But, you know, again, examples uh, of the Tau no longer wanting to uh, hold back and the Ultramarines uh, actively, actively trying to stop the Tau expansion. Um, and then finally, just before the launching of the third sphere, uh, you have the you have the perhaps the strategic awakening of Shadow Sun. Finally, now we'll have to talk about the pure tide uh, students later. Um, the four that we know about for sure um, are Farsight, as mentioned before, Shadow Sun, um, who trained with him, uh, Kais, um, which it's unclear uh, when he was trained by Pure Tide, but most likely that was done in the latter years at the time of questioning, and, um, and Icewind, which we don't know very much about. Um, he likely, he, it's, it's probable that he died on, uh, on Dalith or, or shortly thereafter. Um, but Shadow Sun was placed into, uh, uh, placed into cryogenic uh, uh, suspension. Um, she is awoken um, in uh, sorry, Millennium Forty One, the year nine seventy five, some somewhere between nine seventy five and nine eighty eight. Um, this is uh, in response to um, again, you know, the orcs have have moved into the Western Empire ever since the War of Dhaka. Um, this period of time is known as the Great War of Confederation. Those uh, the Western Vale, which has always been a place of contention for the Tau. Um, finally hits a boiling point and another orc wa invades the Western Empire. So the Western Empire being Sakia and Viorla. Um, in response, Shadow Sun is revived. She's given direct command uh, over an enormous, uh, an enormous uh, coalition of, of, of kind of, uh, of, uh, of, fire, of, of both fire cast and air cast. And she persecutes a war um, that lasts um, over, over a decade. 
and actually completely wipes out the the orc threat from from the Tau Empire finally. So she does something that not even Pure Tide could really do, right? And and really steps steps into her own level of celebrity as she solidifies um, the the hinterlands of the or uh, of the Tau Empire um, and and rises to become the forefront of the of the uh, Tau commanders. Um, after that, she is she is placed in this role that that Anva basically invents, which is kind of uh, uh, let's let's call it like the apex commander. She uh, is now kind of she, her authority stretches beyond uh, her home sept of Tau, um, and she has she is seemingly uh, given authority over the firecast of all of the septs. So when she uh, when she makes a decision to do something, um, it seems like the the seps fall uh, fall under her, her uh, command. So it's kind of cool. Um, and and we we don't. The, the, she is the first. Uh, she's the first Tau commander uh, to have this level of authority. Remember that Farsight was granted um, uh, these kind of reinforcing uh, Sakian, Delif, uh, probably some Viorlin um, uh, cadres to create a coalition. Shadow Sun is just carte blanche given authority over the entirety of the Firecast, um, and so begins her own planning of what will later be called. Uh, the third sphere, which will launch about about a decade later, um, uh, during nine nine seven millennium forty one. But in in the interim, she will she will basically uh, harden the borders. Um, enemies of the Tau uh, Empire are dealt with with much more um, kind of more uh, uh, draconian policies. Um, the auxiliary races are strengthened. There, there's mention of, uh, for example, those Guevesa are are given formal training as well as uh, they are integrated into the water casts uh, attempts to start infiltrating uh, the Imperium, and 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 you have you have a, a very different. And I'll end with that. You have a very different Tau Empire from what you started with. You know, the second sphere was filled with. Kind of unbound hope and this desire to just unite everybody in a very kind of naive non 40k uh mindset and these last 200 years has has created a uh a very strong military uh entity and and a society that is very much um ready to go they're ready to challenge the the larger powers in the eastern Galaxy, uh, specifically Ultramar, of which there are numerous examples of even uh, uh, the Ultramarines realizing that the Tau are becoming a problem, um, as much as the Inquisition, which persecutes this uh, this very uh, interesting shadow war against the Watercast. Um, and there are really cool stories of of Imperial agents uh, countering Tau agents all over the region. Um, it's it's. But at the same time, I will just note that it is a you know there's there is a note of sadness that this uh, this once once very vibrant uh, and and let's call it a bright-eyed uh, species um, suddenly realizes that the the galaxy is a darker place. Uh, they've lost Farsight. You know he's out out in the middle of nowhere, 
um, the orcs uh, the orcs are declared um, incompatible with the greater good, which I've stated before is the is regarded by the water cast as their greatest failure. You know um, that they realize that they are going to have to start taking the gloves off and starting to get much more down and dirty um, against the other uh, the other factions of uh, of the forty first millennium. So that's it for today. Testing, testing. Yep, yep, works. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's more of a comment. I'd like to say I find it interesting how, like, you brought in all these sources and how it'd be like taking, like, sources from, like, the Tyranids. The Tyranids, like, one of your sources what the Tyranid Codex is, right? About when High uh, Fleet. Yeah, um, yeah, these are the, the dates are the dates are entirely from the timelines of the, uh, of the codexes, yeah. Yeah, I find it interesting that. When you take into account all the codexes and not just you know, the Tau codexes, like you know the Imperial books and stuff, it mm-hmm. paints a very different picture than what you know people claim. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that it's really it's it's really in black and white, and and I can't uh, you know one of the things that that really that really helps really helps change someone's opinion of of the Tau race is that you see just entry after entry decades and decades of of just hardship and and the the loss of these these entire worlds remember that the you know the imperium is supposed to be a million planets you know like a, 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 an entire world can be lost by the imperium and nobody will even know about it for a thousand years later you know the Tau have at the at at their largest at, at the end of uh at the end of the third sphere will have like 132 planets to their empire you know um the loss of one of these things uh, one of these worlds one, a single colony is is felt much much deeper um than than if than if you were the imperium you know it's 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 i i think it's more akin to how the eldar have uh when when the Eldar lose a maiden world, like it, it, I think it feels like that for the Tau. When they lose a world, it's a, it's a traumatic event. Um, and then, uh, oh, I have, well, I have a couple more um, comments. No, also, go, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, uh, we're at the end here. You know what? I'll I'll invite since it's since it's a smaller uh, day today. Um, might as well might as might as well move into kind of discussion. But yeah, keep going. Well, one day I noticed that I think a lot of people criticize the Tau Empire for kind of. They don't look at the dates. Like they forget that this this is a span of like hundreds of a hundred years, but they had like like it's a span of like a decade or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? Getting that? Uh, I mean, I, I think so. So so the time of questioning between the second and third sphere is about a is about a two hundred year span of time. Yeah. So well, so all of, yeah all all of this hardship and all of all of these. Uh, tragedies happen in in a very small amount of time if you look at if you look at the scope of the galaxy. Yeah, um, I was referring to how people critique saying like, "Oh, the Tau Ember got plot on because they bounced back way too fast." Like they 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 spent who knows half a, almost half a century trying to build themselves back up. Right, 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 and and that's why you know that that's that's what these talks kind of hope to achieve when it comes to you know. The, the rest of the community the, the the Tau don't have plot armor they they've been thrown into a blender basically and they've come out on the other end very very different from when they came in oh yeah and, i think yeah. oh i'm sorry i no, think no, go for it. 
Exactly one faction in this game has plot armor, and you know which one it is. (laughs) Well, I would like to say is, um, oh, uh, yeah, uh, to add to that, I think the biggest problem is that it's a show-don't-tell problem. It's a a show-don't-tell. They tell you this happened, but they don't, like, devote a novel to it, so people don't know about it. I think that's probably true. And and one of one of the hopes that i have is that there 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 uh there should be an appetite for 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 this you know i want to uh pr- probably the the we we were probably going to get a forge world book that talked about the Tawanar, for example you know that giant tau walker with the the you know the, the giant pulse uh pulse drivers on its back oh oh speaking of that so oh, yeah. when when would the Tau empire start making combining mecha I think it's about time to start looking into that for the Titans. Uh, well, okay. I will say the initial, the initial. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. That was a joke. I was making oh, a joke. Was... <laughs> yeah, I was making a joke that how like you know that they keep making bigger, bigger mecha. They might as well make one that combines into and make a bunch of smaller ones that combine into yeah, the like bigger a, one. Like a Power Rangers kind of thing. Yeah. I... <laughs> I will say, I mean, first of all, yes. I mean, I think everybody likes Mecha to one one extent to another. Um, I'm, you know, Titanfall was a great game, yes. um, but I think that it's something good, something good to note about the Tau is that initially, uh, as of the Second Sphere and the the initial codexes, um, they regarded the notion of a Titan as being absolutely ridiculous. You know, um, that. To, to invest so many resources into a single uh, into a single military unit, I mean, is just impractical, especially something that's that big that can't move very quickly. I mean, the t- Titans are delivered via giant like conveyor ships or these these huge drop pods, right? It's kind of it's kind of it, it's just impractical. And in order to withdraw a Titan from a planet, you need you need to spend enormous amounts of resources basically saving them otherwise you know they, they can get they can uh they become very vul- without support titans become really really yeah vulnerable. um dan abnett's book uh titanicus goes into really good detail about like yeah. the logistics of deploying titans in warfare yes. honestly that's one of my favorite black library books and it kind yeah, of great. does an excellent job of showing the absurd amount of of logistics work and backline support and and back end uh, machinery, all of those sorts of things that goes into having a Titan Legion walk in a into a battlefield. Yeah. Like there's th- there's whole questions of where are we going to procure uh, repair materials, let alone repair them. Do we have safe space to deploy them? How do we how can we pull them back if things get bad? Right, and right. it's kind of this. It's this one machine logistical nightmare. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, for the Tau, how are you going to put that thing down? Like, you need some sort of specialized craft to put a Townar down because, as far as I know, you can't deploy it via Manta or Orca. Yeah, probably. No, definitely not. They'd need some sort of specialized hauler, which, <laughs> if that goes down, then you, the Titan yeah. is just stranded there. Yeah. Like, you well, can it put, is. You, you can pull out a squad of fire warriors with basically anything. Right. Like just worst case scenario, strap rails to a piranha, and like that's that's the end of that. You know what I love? The t- you know I love how the tower respond to the titan by like taking their cheapest like dime a dozen fighter and strap a couple of rail guns on it and just <laughs> shoot. 
and it's like blow out its knees yeah yeah no i mean during uh during the taros campaign which will which is a which is a conflict that happens in the third sphere um that's exactly what happens a tiger shark uh which is the tiger sharks are, are effectively how uh, you 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 move drones around really quickly. They drop they drop squadrons of drones. Um, mm-hmm. They replace that that uh, that that unit with uh, with with two railguns, and yeah, I mean Tau railguns are super cool because they also, in the lore, not not on the tabletop, they they move they they they, uh, they fire uh, the sabot so fast. That it actually bypasses void shields. The void shields are not able to react in time, and they they pierce shields, um, and uh, and cause enormous amounts of damage. And yeah, that's how they kill a titan on 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 Taros. And just just to note, this ability to kill titans using non titans is not something that really exists in 40k. The titans are kind of like. Like in order to engage with an infantry, well, you can meet them with infantry. Uh, engage with tanks, you need tanks. Engage with titans, you need titans. For the Tau to just be like, no, nah, no, we we we're, we're, we're going to just deal with this with air cover is, <laughs> it's it, yeah, it, it's it first it's first of all it's extremely logical, but it's a it's a massive game changer. And I I mean the the Taros book became my favorite uh, codex type. Uh, uh, codex type book. Um, after after I read that, it's just it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it, it's, it's that they're refusing to sink to the tactical level of every other civilization. Yeah, With, every no, other civ like Titans, they're they're not they're not a good idea in any sense of the word, logistically yeah. speaking. But the reason that the Imperium and the Orcs and the the Mechanicum or whoever else keeps producing them. Is because that is because one, it's the only land vehicle they've got that can fit such large weapons, and two, those things are morale boosters. Like good oh, god, yeah. yeah. No, they're, I mean, they're really- the, for the in the case of the Tau, both of those reasons just aren't there. Like they've they've been able to strap stuff like swift strike railguns to to mantas or to orcas, and they've been using those as heavy air support. And in the yeah. case of morale, that's not really as much of an issue, simply because every soldier going into battle has that sort of they've they've all been trained basically from birth, and they're all you know fervently Believers, believing yeah. in the greater yeah. good. Exactly. What I find interesting is that also another tactic I can't imagine how doing is that's like get a bunch of crisis suit teams and just put. Like um, put like chain, give them like super chain mines, and just have them fly up, fly up to the joints of the Titan. Titan just like snow speeders. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's the joke I always made when uh, like all they had to do, all the town had to do was fight Titan. They get a bunch of crisis suits and just pull a Star Wars, pull a Hoff. Yeah, pull a Hoff. But but yeah. see, that's that's the that's the thing. The Tau meet a lot of the the. Uh meet a lot of the the kind of the more esoteric weapons of the of the other species with logic like a titan is a is called a god machine and it's like to a tau though it's just like that's just a really Dumb inappropriately idea. built building that walks like okay so take out one leg and they're there if, the, if the tau really wanted to build something of that scale 
uh, it they would probably build something like the uh, the ATT from Star Wars. This kind of oh. like low to the ground eight legged vehicle. It's oh. spreading out its weight a lot better. It's got a it's got a lower center of gravity. It's it's less vulnerable to things like landmines. I mean, um, I, I, mean I, I really think the Manta is just is the ultimate response to anything large scale. I mean, it's it. it remember that the Manta has a warp drive on it. You know, it it can carry an entire cadre into battle. It has, uh, you know, inter. What uh, uh, it, it it has what, what I forget what they're called, but but the the, the high yield ordnance rail guns as well as an entire uh, battery. The Swift of, strikes. I think they're bigger than the Swift strikes. Yeah. I'm not, but I'm not sure. Um, but like, like a Manta is just it's a starship. So like, why why even bother making something with legs? Because something with legs can't fly. You know, well, theoretically, can't fly. Well, I mean, that insert all of the battle suits. Right. Yeah, but, uh, but even if they make something that's bipedal, that big at a time, I imagine the most logical being, so they don't have to create a brand new ship to carry it, they just transport it, like have, like I said, the combining mecha approach, just transport it in smaller parts. I yeah. imagine I mean, be, if they if they end up going Power Rangers, I might have to, uh, that's that's rough. That'd be rough, Black Comet. Well, <laughs> I, I imagine it'd be like the original Power Rangers approach, like first they combine into like a mega tank, then when they have to, they just kind of like transform back into the robot. I mean, you know, with the Tau do have a super heavy tank variant. Yeah, um, the sword, I forget what it's called. The sword. Uh, the, is, remember, I think it's it's I think it's called some variant of that. But it was deployed oh. during the Taros campaign as a response to like Bane blades and crap. Yeah, like I'll have to look it up. That's what I love. I don't okay. think he gave any sort of technical information or visuals. Yeah, that's what I love about the town. They're like the same man in an insane universe. Yeah, exactly. Which is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole reason why I love uh, love Tao so much. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine looking at the time, and be like, "What the fuck? <laughs> Are you afraid? You know? Are you afraid? No, that's the stupidest waste of resources I ever saw." Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, when you when you look at the Talonar. I will say that the town, I, the town are uh, the lore entry for it convinced me that it it works because it's just it was invented by uh, by a, 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 a an Earth cast scientist that was watching his sept basically be eaten from the outside in, and with nowhere to go, it's like okay, well, you know, all of the mantas are in space engaging against a hive fleet uh and there is a swarm on this planet coming in we need to take the guns off of off of our you know, I, I mean uh, probably straight up just invent new guns in order to deal with this situation but it's a very niche uh it's a very niche weapon and something that mm. uh you know oh. some something that is uh is entirely uh bespoke to the situation yeah. Even if the Tau did have Titans, I doubt they would deploy them on the front lines. Like when yeah. a when a vehicle is that tall and when it's got projectiles that strong, it can probably fire from far enough away that it doesn't have to care. And unlike in the case of Imperial Titans, that uh that Taunar or that Storm Surge reliably has battlefield information saying, Yeah, the enemy is going to be here in three minutes. Can you just remove that spot from existence real quick? Yeah, sure. Pretty much, 
it seems like based on the title, quote unquote Titans are pretty much glorified weapons platform that are pretty much relative, relatively hard to replace, but nowhere near as hard as replaceable as the Titans that the Imperium. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I think there's only like five or six places left in the Imperium that actually can construct Titans. Yeah, it's like pretty much. I I used this joke before when a tower when when a Imperium loses a ship, it, the Imperium says, "Oh shit." When when the towel loses the ship, they say, "Oh well." Huh. That's an interesting. Well, that's an interesting perspective. Well, obviously, for the for the Tau, if let's say that the Tau lose a uh, uh, the the Tau lose some some large spacecraft like a custodian or something like that, for the Tau, the much greater loss there is the trained crew, and right. the any admirals that might be on it. It's about the because that's what's harder for them to replace. Whereas for somebody like uh, the Imperium, if they were to lose a like a Luna class or whatever, I don't know their ship classes, the bigger loss would be the ship itself as compared to right. the crew, who are just expendable humans. That's it for our episode. We're getting a little bit better at uh, having these intros and outros. Thank you so much for listening. It's uh, it's a pleasure to bring you some debate and a little bit of lecture about the Tau subjects. Next episode, we'll be going over Farsight, which will be broken down into two different episodes because there's a lot there. And uh, be sure to like, subscribe. And if you have any comments or any requests, please don't hesitate to reach out to the Tau 40,000 server on Discord. Have a good one.